0: If you have your copy of God's Word. I invite your attention to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're talking about spiritual gifts today. Last Sunday we looked at the first two verses of this great chapter. You remember that in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is helping us to transition from deep theological truth that he taught us in the first 11 chapters into practical application of that truth, and he signals that transition is happening with the word therefore. That means in the light of or because of this deep doctrine that I've just taught you, here's how you are now to live. And specifically, as we saw last week, the way we're to live is as living sacrifices. Every day and every moment of the day, we are to submit ourselves, mind, body, and spirit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are to live life, in other words, as one continual act of worship. Why? Well, he says, because of the mercies of God. That is, I take it, motivated by thankfulness and praise for what God has done through us as Dr. Ford prayed for our salvation, for justification by faith, for the fact that nothing can separate us from the love of God, for the fact that Romans 8, 1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Those mercies are to motivate us every day to come to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm yours. Do with me as you choose. Now, Paul's application almost always in his epistles has to do with relationships, just like most of our problems in life have to do with our relationships. And in fact, if any of you have ever come to the third floor for biblical counseling, it's likely that the curriculum we used is the book of Ephesians. Because in the book of Ephesians, we have three chapters of incredibly deep doctrine, just as we have for 11 chapters in Romans. And then we have three chapters of application as it relates to relationships. You might remember that he starts off in chapter four of Ephesians as here's how any two Christians or to treat one another, they speak the truth to one another. They're only to say those things to one another that are designed to build up and not to tear down. And then in chapter five, he moves from two Christians to two Christians who are married. He talks about the roles of the husband and the wife and mutual submission. And then he talks about our children, the role of children and parents in our relationships. And Unbelievably, he even gets down to employer-employee relationships. How do we treat those we work for and those who work for us? And in Romans, it's a similar pattern. Uh, Right here in chapter 12, for example, the first two verses are about our relationship to God. That one's not right. The other ones aren't going to be right, are they? And then as we'll see today from verse 3 all the way through verse 16, he speaks of our relationship to other Christians in the context of the local church. And then from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, he says, here's how Christians are to relate to the lost people all around them. And so uh, in every case, it all begins with that vertical relationship. That is, our relationship to God has to be in order if we hope to have right relationships with other people. In fact, that is the theme of the entire book of Romans. And the answer to the simple question, how can a person, a man or woman, boy or girl, be right with a holy God? And of course, the answer to that question is justification by faith. And now he says, now that you have been justified by faith, here's how to have right relationships with other people. I hope you're interested. So let's read our text, Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 3, Paul writes, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. But to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. And since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. He who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this, his word. Now, I said last week that actions always begin in the mind, right? As a man thinketh, so is he. Verse 3, says a similar thing. He says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself, then he ought to think. Now, here in verse three, Paul is writing about how a Christian is to think about himself. Now, I'm a person who doesn't naturally go up to strangers and start a conversation. But I figured out something a few years ago, as limited as I am in my ability to carry on conversations one-on-one, I have found something that helps me. I have found that almost everyone loves to talk about themselves. I heard about uh, two men who were sitting on the front porch, rocking away and they were talking and for 30 minutes one of them dominated the conversation. The other one didn't get a word in edgewise. And so the one who was doing all the talking looked over to his friend and noticed he was losing interest. His facial expression, his body language said that. And so to draw him back in he says, well enough about me Harold, let's talk about you. What do you think about me Harold? And people like to talk about themselves. They like to hear about themselves. So, so Paul says, here's the thing about when you're thinking about yourself, there's a warning. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. In fact, Paul models that kind of humility even in his tone. I said last week I was amazed by the tone of the Apostle Paul. He didn't use his apostolic authority to make demands of the people. He came right down to their level. And he does that again here. He says, through the grace given to me, I say this to you. He says, look, I'm one of you. Grace is gift, right? God gave me certain gifts and blessings, number one of which is his salvation, and then the ability to teach and exhort. And he says, now I'm exhorting you through the grace given to me. And what he's exhorting us to is sound thinking about ourselves. Now, there, there's some warnings implied here about how we think about ourselves. Number one, he, he states very clearly, don't have a higher estimation of yourself than is warranted. And Paul knows that's a possibility because all human beings tend to be biased towards ourselves. That. Uh, what we see in others as poorly motivated, we give ourselves a pass on. In fact, Paul said about himself in another portion of Scripture that I know nothing against myself, but I am not by this acquitted. Paul knew that would never stand up in a court of law if, if you got up in a court of law and said, I'm innocent. That wouldn't hold water. That had to be proven through actions and through the testimony of other people. And then he says, the first thing you need to know about thinking rightly about yourself, it needs to be sound judgment. Now that is a word taken from the legal world of law. Paul had some history in law. In fact, throughout this book of Romans, I've referred to him as an attorney bringing charges against the human race. And bringing witnesses about who we are and who God is. And so this, though, is not a courtroom scene. It's a legal document. Many of you, most of you, I hope, of a certain age have made out your last will and testament. And in your last will and testament, they usually begin something like this. Fill in your name. Being of sound mind and judgment. This is the Greek word. Sound mind and judgment. That is, you are... Someone who possesses your faculties, your sensibilities. You are sane, in other words. Paul says we need to think sanely about ourselves. Because he knows that Christians tend to err on two ends of the spectrum when it comes to thinking about ourselves. Number one, we tend to think more highly of ourselves than we should. And we call that pride. The Bible has many warnings against pride. Pride goes before destruction. The Lord loves humility. He despises pride. But then there is another end of the spectrum, and I have seen many brothers and sisters who fall in this category, and that's what we call false humility. That is, they don't understand their role in the body and God's promises to them and their role in the body. They have a lack of confidence. They think they don't matter. They think they don't have any usefulness in God's church. And sometimes mistakenly they think this must be because I'm so humble. I'm so meek. I don't see any usefulness for myself in the church. It's not that at all. See, true humility is not saying I don't bring anything to the table. True humility gets the same amount of joy when Christ is glorified no matter who is the means through which he's glorified. That is, if you're a singer and someone else gets up and sings to the glory of God and he's glorified, you get just as much joy of that as if you had been the singer. That's true humility. It's not pretending that God hasn't given me any gifts. In fact, God has given us gifts. He says so. He says, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. And I take that very literally. In fact, it's my belief that when we're saved, we immediately have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit distributes to each member spiritual gifts, and no one is left out. Now, when he says this measure of faith. He's not talking about faith to believe on Christ for salvation. He's writing to saved people. He's assuming all of them have saving faith. He's talking about the faith then to live it out by exercising your spiritual gifts and serving other Christians. But unfortunately, in the church, our favorite sport is comparing and contrasting isn't it we like to say that guy has more or that lady has less or how do I compare contrast to to that person Um, but in the bible especially in Paul's letters the standard is always faithfulness and never success in fact you may know that my favorite passage in all the bible that I love to preach is first corinthians chapter one chapter four rather verses one and two where Paul is addressing the church at Corinth who has the mistaken notion that they're to pick out their favorite preacher and rank them like a football team. One through four, some of Peter, some of Apollos, some of Paul, some of Christ. Paul says, look, if you wanna talk about us, he includes himself there, two words. Number one, we are stewards of the mysteries of Christ. That means managers of property that belongs to another. Now, you don't rank managers in a magazine every fall. You rank football teams. Uh, and then the other word is slave. How foolish it would be to make a slave a celebrity in Paul's world. In fact, it was a very specific word for slave, not just any slave, but the slaves that rowed the oars underneath the ship deck where no one saw them. And do you know what happened when one of those Slaves worked himself to death, literally. They threw him overboard and locked up somebody else in that spot. And Paul says how foolish it would be to hold that position up at celebrity status. He says, look, we're just stewards, enslaved, and Christ gets the glory. So we're not to judge our life and our abilities and gifts and opportunities compared to what God gives someone else, but what he gives us. Now that's very freeing, isn't it? know that God's not going to judge you based on the gifts and opportunities and faith that he gave someone else. But we all will be judged according to Hebrews. In fact, the Bible says it's appointed us all to die and then be judged. So secondly, we see that as gifted people, as saved people, we have a shared body. Verse 4. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So last Sunday, you recall, we talked about submitting every body part of our individual bodies to the Lord's service. We started with the eyes. Men, remember, make a covenant with your eyes, not to look upon one but lust. less. We are intentional about what we listen to, who we listen to. We need to be very intentional about guarding our lips and our tongue, not to say anything that's destructive. And then use our legs, our feet, our arms to work hard for the Lord. So now he's extending that metaphor now to the church. Just as each member has many body parts, each member of the church is a body part. That's the image. The church is a body. Christ is the head. And under his direction, some of us are hands and feet some of us noses, some of us eyes, but we all play a part. Now, as we think about that metaphor, which we find in other parts of the Pauline literature, here's the primary points he's making. I have five here. Number one, each part, that is each member, belongs to the same body, okay? We all belong to the same body, the body of Christ, the church. Secondly, each part has a different function. How boring it would be if everyone had the same spiritual gift. But they work in unison together, even though all the gifts are different. Each part is important. Now, there are certain body parts that get all the publicity, don't they? Usually those who stand in front and make a lot of noise. But other body parts are incredibly important. Maybe you never see them. The heart, for example. You never see it unless you're in real trouble. (laughs) But it's important. When you say the heart is an important body part, of course it is. Each part is important. Each part is connected to every other part. Walking down the street and you see a disembodied finger laying on the ground, you don't think, how lovely. (laughs) You think, how revolting. Because you know God didn't design a finger to be disconnected from the body. It can't carry out its function if it's not connected to the hand, the hand connected to the arm, and so forth. And yet how many times? Have I talked with people about their salvation, about their walk with the Lord? I'd say, are you a Christian? And they say, yes, but I don't like the church. I don't want to be a part of the church. I hear celebrities say this all the time when they're interviewed about their religion. They'll say, I'm spiritual, I'm just not religious. What they mean is, I have some concept that God exists, but I don't care enough about other people to have anything to do with them. I want to be my own prophet and priest and worship the God that I've created of my imagination. And that is uh, just as incongruous as a hand and a foot going in opposite directions, having their own independent way of thinking. Every part, every member, though it has a different function, is important and must come under the authority of the head. And who's the head? It's Christ. He directs the body parts. And look, when a human body is well-trained and all the parts are functioning the way they're supposed to and they're moving in the way God intended, it's a beautiful thing. And yet, when it's not the case, there's chaos. And I think we have a danger in quote-unquote modern Christianity, and that is what James Boyce warned about 40 years ago in one of his books. He called it hyper-personalized religion. This was 40 years ago. He saw the trend being that every person wanted to be their own church. That is, they wanted to worship God in the way that they saw fit. They didn't see any connection to other believers. I call it, in the modern day, a la carte Christianity. People want to take a little bit from this church, a little bit from that cult, and a little bit from philosophy and mix it all together and call it Christianity. And even... Evangelical Christians, I think, can be guilty of this. Maybe they live in a community like ours where there's dozens of local churches. and They like the music over here. They like the preacher over here. And they love the children's program over here. And so they go to all of them and never commit to any of them. Because they view the church not as a body in which they're a part to serve the whole they view the church as a service to them. And by the way, who can blame them? Because for 40 years, that's how we've marketed evangelical Christianity. Come to our church, we've got a great nursery. Come to our church, we've got a great music program. Come to our church for this reason or that. And we sound like used car salesmen. But, friends, the gospel is not a used car to be sold. To be sold. Uh, Really, what we long to hear as pastors when a person comes and visits our church and they want to know more about our church is how can we serve? How can we serve? And if you get transferred to Atlanta, Georgia, Oklahoma City or San Diego next month and you're looking for a new church, don't go in and say, sell me on your church. You got 15 minutes, Go which is what most people do. Rather, go to that pastor and say, how can we serve? What are your needs? That's the right idea of being a part of a body, not hyper-personalized religion. and certainly not a la carte Christianity. But when we tell people it's all about you, they believe it. I I, I almost went down and put us on our sign yesterday down by the street. It's not about you. And I need to tell myself that. It's not about me either. It's about the Lord. Well, that leads us to our third and final point. Uh, Speaking of spiritual gifts, he gives us sorted types, not assorted, sorted into two broad categories of gifts. Look at verse six. He says, since we have gifts that differ, according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith, if service, in serving, in teaching and teaching. So on and on he goes. But I want to point out the first phrase there in verse 6. Since we have gifts. Take a marker. Circle it. Underline it. Do something that you can remember. Especially the last three words in that phrase. We have gifts. That's a truth that he's making. A statement. We have been given gifts. Each one of us. Every believer I take it. And if that is true. If this is to be taken at face value, that means there's no such thing as a Christian, a true born-again believer without a purpose in life. I think that's one of my greatest frustrations in nearly 30 years of pastoring. It's not the person that struggles with temptation and sin. We all do. It's not the person who is prideful. There's always going to be those people in the church. It's the one who knows the truth but doesn't believe it. And they say things like, I don't have any gift. I don't have anything to be brought to bear. I can't serve in any way in the church. And then they hide behind false humility. I'm so humble, I don't think I have anything to bring to the table. No, no, that's wrong. In fact, let me say it hopefully kindly. If you say, I don't have a spiritual gift, if you say, I don't have anything that's useful in the Lord's kingdom, you are teetering on the edge of blasphemy. Because God says you do. God says you have the indwelling presence of the Spirit. God says you have a spiritual gift and He is one day going to hold you accountable. And when you say, no, I don't, you're calling God a liar. You're diminishing His grace and glory and power to transform a person. Now, most of us who have been Christians any time at all have heard about spiritual gifts, maybe when you were saved, uh, you took a spiritual gift survey or inventory to try to help you discern your gift. But here in Romans 12, Paul simply sorts our spiritual gifts, I think, into two broad categories. Number one is the gifts of expounding. And number two category, the gift of expanding the kingdom. Expanding, expanding the kingdom and expounding the word. Now, that's not original with me, but I like it, so I'm using it. Uh, what are the gifts of expounding? Well, he says there are three, prophecy, teaching, and exhortation which are nuances of the same thing. Okay, what is prophecy? When we hear that, we tend to think of Elijah predicting a drought, right? Someone who can foretell the future. Now, certainly there were prophets in the Old Testament who God gifted that way. That's not really what Paul's referring to here. In the New Testament, where we talk about prophecy, it's always under the heading of proclaiming God's word. So a prophet tells the people about God. Uh, A a priest tells God about the people, right? And so a, a prophet is one who proclaims God's word. He's not necessarily predicting the future. He's saying, thus says the Lord. Now, a teacher, someone who has the gift of teaching, has the ability to explain the meaning of God's word. This gift is geared towards our minds. It helps us to think clearly about the meaning of God's Word. I'm thinking right now of a man who has the gift of teaching who has been so helpful for 30 years in helping me understand and interpret God's Word. I'm so thankful for that man. Some have the gift of exhortation. And we defined exhortation last week as the intentional ability to motivate someone to make a change, to do something. And so if teaching is geared towards the mind, Exhortation is geared towards the heart. All of us have friends in our lives, I suspect, or a preacher in your past who had the ability to motivate you to do what is right. And we're thankful for those people who use those gifts in that way. And so it's those who teach and preach the word of God with an aim to change. And then there's the gift of expanding the kingdom of God. He gives four of those. And he starts with the gift of service. And do you know what the Greek word that he uses here? It's a form of the word diakonos, where we get the word deacon. And incidentally, you deacons, this afternoon I'm going to announce a schedule for our bringing in some new deacons in calendar year 2023. And I hope you'll be there. And all of you have a part of that. We have open nominations. So we're asking you to start today prayerfully observing the men in our church to ask the Lord to help you discern those who have this gift of serving. Because the primary difference between a deacon and a pastor is that the deacons attend primarily to the physical needs of the congregation, whereas the pastors attend primarily to the spiritual needs. And then he has the gift of giving. Somebody's got to pay for all that, right? Now all of us should give as the Lord gives us grace, but some have a gift of giving, that is, They don't hold anything tightly that the Lord puts into their hands. It doesn't have to be wrestled or wrenched out of their hand. They get great joy. They are a cheerful giver. And if that's your gift, use it for the Lord's glory. Some have the gift of leadership. They can serve on committees and get things done. We need many people like that in our church. And some have the gift of mercy. They always have the right word to say at the right time. Now, does it mean that if you don't necessarily think you have the gift of service giving, leadership, or mercy, you're exempted from doing those things? Certainly not. He's just saying there are those that the Lord gives to the church to lead out in these ways. The point is everyone has a gift and all of them are important and all of them are to be brought under the authority of Christ. And so in conclusion, let me say six statements about spiritual gifts. Number one, if you're saved, there's some things that are true about you. Number one is you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, who is the giver and the distributor of these spiritual gifts. And He distributes them wisely and accordingly. Secondly, if you are born again and saved and have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you have been given by the Spirit at least one spiritual gift. Don't say, I don't have a spiritual gift. If anything, say, I don't know what it is. And then be prayerful that the Lord would show you what that gift is. Ask other people, what do they observe in you as a possible spiritual gift? Uh, If that's true, that you're born again, you have the indwelling spirit, you have at least one spiritual gift, that means thirdly that one day you're going to be held accountable for how you use that gift. That's what Paul meant when he said he was a steward. A steward is a manager who gives an account to his boss at the end of the service. Jesus told many parables about stewards. About how a rich man went off for a season and he came back and he held the managers accountable for how they invested. How are you investing your spiritual gift for the Lord's glory? Hopefully not hiding it under a bushel basket, but you're investing in and making a return on it. And then fourthly, and let me draw you in close here because this is the primary point I'm making today. If you're saved, you have the indwelling spirit and he's distributed to you at least one spiritual gift for which you'll be held accountable one day after you die. The place to exercise that gift primarily is in the accountability relationship of a local church. But if you are an a la carte Christian, flitting about like a butterfly to this organization, that organization, from this preacher to that, you never settle down and invest in people enough that you can exercise that gift for the Lord's glory. And I'll say even more specifically, in our context at First Baptist Keller, if you're not involved in adult Bible school, uh, Sunday school class, it's very difficult for you to know people at a level in which you can exercise your gift for God's glory and their benefit. So you need to join a church if you're not a part of a church. And if you are part of this church, you need to find a Sunday school class to be a part of. For First Baptist Church of Keller to be everything God wants her to be, every member must fulfill his or her function for the glory of God. And I, I want to see it, don't you? That's the last point I wrote down. I want to see it. We, we've been praying for a revival around here for years. And I think most of us equate revival with baptisms and people getting saved. That's one indicator that God is moving, but it's not the only one. I think a greater indicator as any is that a larger percentage of our membership are actively involved in exercising their spiritual gift. In fact, the ultimate goal is that every one of our nearly 2,500 members would be using their spiritual gifts for the benefit of the body, ultimately for the glory of God. You talk about turning a community upside down for Jesus. If we all were doing that, do you think we'd see change in this city and state and nation? Yes, we would. Let's pray for that. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, if you're not saved, it starts there. You better get saved, right? How can you be saved? Call upon the name of the Lord. Simple, childlike faith. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God's raised Him from the dead. You'll be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord in faith will be saved. And once you're saved, He's going to give you the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit to lead you to all truth, to be your comforter, your guide and friend. He's also going to introduce you to the body of believers universally. Your part of every other Christian that's ever existed. But locally, you need to belong to a local church. And I refuse to be a used car salesman. I told you that. If you're a used car salesman, no offense. (laughs) That's not what I want to do today. I don't want to try to sell you on why you desperately need to join First Baptist Church. I don't know if you do. That's between you and the Lord. I do know this. You need to join some church. If it's not here, join somewhere else but plant your life in a local church where you can exercise your gift and where other people can bless you through the exercise of of their gifts for your benefit. But all of it's for the glory of God. And then finally, will you join me, First Baptist Church of Keller member, in praying that every member of First Baptist Keller in 2023 would make a firm commitment to exercising their spiritual gifts for the glory of God. Let's pray that just now. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And it's a convicting word, Lord. We have, all of us just about in this room, grown up in a culture um, that tells us the church is a service industry for our benefit. How many of us have heard a spiel from some pastor or deacon trying to convince them to join a church, one or another? Lord, if I've ever done that, I ask your forgiveness. That's your business, not mine. Lord, I will confess, I love this church, and I believe it's a great church, and I believe its greatest days are ahead. And if I were giving advice to a person searching for a church, I'd encourage them to join this one, because I believe in what you're doing here. And yet, Lord, we're not the only church. There are many other faithful local bodies. It's my prayer that every truly born-again Christian would not be satisfied with hyper-personalized religion or a la carte Christianity, that they would submit themselves to a local body of believers. And Father, I pray for First Baptist Keller because this is the congregation that in your sovereignty you've chosen to call me and the other pastors to shepherd. We feel that every day. We want to model right behavior and speech and thoughts father we want to serve them well so father we pray that each of them would one discern their spiritual gifts and then two lord practice them for your glory father we believe if we would see that movement take place in the year ahead we would see true spiritual awakening and indeed revival that is our prayer lord would you do it For your glory. This year we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.